I've told you things you wouldn't believe. Stories of novels by Todd Noy and Rich Shapiro. We've laughed about Rin, Tongue, and Dorna, and the mystery of the elusive papaya. I regaled you with false invasions of Norway. All those episodes of what the conspiracy will be lost in time, like tears and rain. Time to retire the segment. Yeah, hang on, haven't you done a Blade Runner reference before? Like, just a few episodes ago? Maybe you'll end up like me, a hobo with a podcast. Yeah, that's better. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. you're listening to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy i am josh edison here in auckland new zealand and in zhuhai china we have associate professor of philosophy who's over percent tofu by weight dr m r extendeth now i know that's a lie by because i yeah in china i'm 60 percent dofu ah well there you go i don't know that's the difference no well it's just it's just that's the that is the mandarin word for tofu is dofu mm. That would make more sense then. Uh, so, so this episode, this this is both an ending and a beginning. The Alpha and the Omega of the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. I mean, um, well, I mean, kind well, I mean, of. I mean, you're guide, but... you're talking about this as it being the end of what the conspiracy. It's not really ending per se. What we've hit here is the limit of you having topics for what the conspiracy. I may surprise you with a what the conspiracy from time to time. Well, feel free but to. as a regular segment, it's mm. coming to an end because of your inability to surprise me with novel conspiratorial content. Although today. Today might be the test. Today you may have found three examples that I go, yes, you could have done an entire episode on that. You fool. You well, fool. We'll you gave up too soon. Or mm. something of that particular kind. Who knows? Hmm. Yes, so as a, as a little send-off to the segment, to, as a regular, um, we're, we're going to go through, I, I'm pretty sure we've mentioned this in previous episodes, I, I certainly have a list, and I assume him does too, of little ideas that I've come across and then looked at and thought, eh, there's probably not a whole episode in there, so ne never actually got around to using them. Well, now's the time when we're going to use them. Uh, and in a way, this is this is sort of both looking back and, and, and looking forward a little bit, because as we've suggested, we're going to start revisiting... Uh, old topics given that we've been going for almost eight years now um no over eight years now and there are a whole lot of things that there have been updates on there are a whole lot of things that you the listeners if you haven't unless you've been with us since the very beginning have not heard us talk about so it probably wouldn't hurt to go back to them and the thing is we've kind of done an episode like this before as well so so in a way it's also the start of our regular segment of revisiting old topics, because back in episode 113, September of 2016, uh, we first took a dive into the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy grab bag cavalcade of conspiracy nuggets. Uh, that was the episode when you, Em, were about to go off to Romania, and we weren't quite sure if the podcast was going to continue, so we did a little bit of, hey, here's a whole bunch of little things we've, we've thought about mentioning but never actually did and got them all out of our system, uh, we're kind of going to do that again. The other thing to note, and this came up in a patron bonus ep episode, when we were going through a list of things we've covered in the past, 
there were a fair few number of things that we had looked at in the past that we have no memory of whatsoever. Bo Bergdahl being a great example. So some of this yes. actually might be going back and going, what was what the this? What was that again? Did, yeah. And did this become a major story or did it just disappear? In fact, actually, this was part of the topic uh, topic of conversation I had with Joe Usinski, I think outside of the interview last week, which was around the notion that so many conspiracy theories die. There are so many topics that we've looked at which have had no shelf life whatsoever. None at all. Mm. Mm. Yes. I mean, we did puzzle our way. Th- we, we did manage to remember who Ber- Bo Bergdahl was in the end. But, yeah, not a lot came of that. Or it certainly, certainly I, I think that was one that possibly got dumped when more juicy conspiracy theories came along, because it was one of those ones that sort of appealed to a certain, certain end of the political spectrum, I think. But anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about today. Uh, we're here, well, it, who knows? Who know, I don't know what you're here to talk about today. You don't know what I'm here to talk about today. Uh, shall we play one last What the Conspiracy Sting and get into it? Indeed we shall. It's time to play What the Conspiracy. Right, so, who wants to go first? Do you want to go first? Actually... So, all right, we should get some ground rules down here okay, because I've sure, got sure. I've got three moderate what the conspiracy topics, and that there's more than just say a headline, but there wasn't enough for an episode. But I've got one or two topics which really would never have fitted the segment at all. So, do you have do you have kind of moderately sized topics yeah. we talk about in bite sized chunks? Because if you don't have any kind of, I couldn't do this one because it was too small, and I couldn't do this one because it was too big. We could also do those as well before we get into the meat of the topic. No, I've got um, I've got a, I've got a few that aren't much more than a couple of sentences really, and I've got a couple that not not big enough. To have filled up an entire episode, I think, but but still have a bit of substance and will be interesting to talk about. That's that's what I think. Well, so let's, let's we do start. The ones first, yeah, let's start with the one which I wanted to do an episode on, and then really couldn't find enough to justify it. And mm. this can be summed up with the sentence: "Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead on Her Majesty's Secret Service." I like it. Uh, can you expand on that, or are you just going to leave it as it is? Which would be okay. Well, no, see, Lyndon LaRouche, the now-dead, but for a long time quite prominent, confusing conspiracy theorist in American politics, confusing because Lyndon LaRouche was described as being either hard-left or hard-right, depending on who you were talking to, was adamant that the Grateful Dead were indeed part of the British invasion, of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, which is usually taken to be the Brits taking over music in America. But in LaRouche's worldview, it was part of a plot by the English crown to make American teenagers degenerate. So he was adamant that Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead were working for MI5, MI6, MI7, MI9, MI8. Who knows which MI they were working for. They were working for one of them to make American youth degenerate. And that's basically it. Lyndon LaRouche claimed this. He claimed this a lot. 
there really is no evidential basis to it other than the fact it was something that Lyndon LaRouche talked about a lot. So I went, I mean, it's, it's a great idea for a topic, mm. but basically I've just told you everything. Otherwise, it would have been a discussion about how neither of us know anything about The Grateful Dead. That is a true fact, yes. Yeah, I think that one probably just gets filed under Lyndon LaRouche said a lot of stuff. And, Which uh, would be a topic in its own right, and maybe, did, maybe one day we should time, look. We talked about yeah, and, 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 and that's something stuff. that we we might want to mm. revisit as mm. part of our remake series because I imagine there's a lot more to say about Larouche. Mm. Well, meanwhile, I so one idea I had was was doing a what the conspiracy episode about monopolies. Because I thought they were so interesting. So not not the variation not the board of board game. games. No, no. Because there the are actual... a lot of Monopoly oh, board so games. Ah, there's so many. There's there two. I mean, I mean, there are too many because a, it's Monopoly. It should be one. Mm. And two, Monopoly is a very bad game, so you shouldn't be making no. endless variations of it anyway. I mean, the whole point of it was to it was sort of a satire of capitalism, wasn't it? You're supposed to play it and go, well, this is a bit rubbish. It always ends up with one person hoovering up all the money and destroying everyone else. Oh. But, and everybody yeah. plays it without actually reading the rules. Because it turns out if you read the rules, that free parking rule that everybody plays with does not exist. Not an official rule, no. No, no. Been, no. and indeed it kind of skews, it, it skews the game. The whole point but, is you're meant to be... You're, the, te- the tactic for, for winning Monopoly is to only build houses and never build hotels. You're meant to be a slumlord. You're meant to be a Because you make a lot more money that way. Mm. Uh, anyway, no, I, was, I wanted to talk about corporate monopolies. I thought it, I thought it could be an interesting topic to discuss, just because they're they're sort of conspiratorial and sort of aren't. Because like monopolies, they're sort of thing that not a lot of people know about in some cases, but they're not technically secret. Like who who owns what company? is generally a matter of public records, so anyone can find out, but not a lot of people do. So, I mean, there are examples. This was triggered. I was watching an episode of, um, uh, what's his name, Adam Ruins Everything, uh, where he was talking about sunglasses and how Luxottica, which is a brand of sunglasses you may have seen, actually owns all of the other brands. So when you're buying sunglasses, no matter what the brand, you're essentially buying Luxottica sunglasses, which goes some way, or I think just any glasses, which goes some way to, towards explaining why they're so damn expensive. Uh, and then that, the, I was thinking, you could talk about that, you could talk, we could talk about De Beers for a bit, obviously, with their hold on the diamond industry. I'm not sure, I mean, the, you, we, you, you could say a lot about De Beers and the, the wackiness they've got up to, and their massive stores of diamonds and, and how... You know, diamonds used to be the the um, preserve of royalty until people started basically picking them up off the ground in Africa, and suddenly there were heaps of them. But but De Beers managed to con- maintain a stranglehold on the market, and then all the wackiness they got up to when people started producing synthetic diamonds and so on. Uh, but again, a lot of it it's 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 hard to justify as conspiratorial, except in a funny is it or isn't it discussion around whether being. Um, uh, obscure but not technically secret accounts. And then there was one that I'm pretty sure I've talked about in this um, podcast before, uh, the porn monopoly. How 
there is a company whose name I, I haven't looked up because I, I never actually got into researching this topic and I didn't want uh, what is the company that makes all the porn in my uh, search search history. Um, but there is a company that apparently, with, with the most, I can't remember the name, but it's the most generic, meaningless name, sort of, sort of international holdings or just something that means absolutely nothing that owns the major porn production companies in America, at least, and the major porn websites out of America, which means even when people pirate the videos they make and put them up on other sites, they're making advertising money off of it anyway, um, which was an interesting discussion, if only for the fact that this monopoly means that the people who work in that industry, not just the actors, but every anyone involved in the industry, um, have fairly poor working conditions because because uh, it's a monopoly, um, and yet nothing's going to be done about that because in order for it to happen, a polit politicians would have to get involved, which means a politician would have to stand up in the Senate or Congress or wherever politicians stand up in the States and say, we need to do something about the porn industry, and that politician would be known as the porn politician from now until the end of days. Uh, so that will never happen. So yeah, I mean, I thought I thought there could have been some interesting discussions around it, but it wouldn't. I, I thought it would have been going a little bit too far off topic to really justify an episode. I'm just thinking now about the porn czar, because mm, yeah, that, yes. that's that, that's what they've become. Yeah. They become the porn czar. America needs a porn czar. Yes. Yes. Well, that, that okay. So, so that's my first abortive topic. What else you got, Josh? Can I interest you in some primates? Yeah, always. always. So, have you heard of Monkey Gate? I have not heard of Monkey Gate, no. Is it just a gate in, like, the monkey enclosure at a zoo? No, no. See, the thing about Monkey Gate... So, remember that Volkswagen emission scandal that we've talked about a lot on this podcast? We have. Is this about monkey emissions? Now I'm interested. Well, no, it's more about, about an experiment that Volkswagen committed back in either May of 2015 or 2014. I've actually found two different dates here, and I think one may refer to when the experiment started, and the other might be referring to by the time the experiments were finished. So it turns out back in 2018, it was revealed that Volkswagen had experimented with gassing monkeys with the exhaust fumes of diesel cars. Ah, well, that's a lot less, a lot less amusing than I was hoping. Actually, that that does sound familiar to me. I, I I I'm sure I remember seeing pictures of monkeys essentially in like gas mask arrangements, weren't they? With uh with uh, the fumes being piped directly into their faces. Yes, that's correct. So Volkswagen wanted to show that diesel fumes are not carcinogenic. So they decided the best way to show that would be to gas a whole bunch of monkeys. Now. What makes this particular experiment horrific actually isn't the ethics of the experiment of taking primates and gassing with gas masks. No, the thing which makes this experiment particularly horrific was that the Volkswagen Beetle they were using to gas these monkeys had a cheat device installed in it. So it was producing fewer emissions and thus, of course, wasn't going to be as carcinogenic as an actual car was going to be, because the cheap devices that Volkswagen were using in the emission scandal were also the cheap devices they were using to show that diesel fumes are not carcinogenic. Right. They're not good for you, though, are they? 
So this is a classic case of a conspiracy folding into another conspiracy here. So Volkswagen were using their cheap devices in the US and the EU in order to try to show that their cars don't produce as many emissions as they did, and then they're using the same kind of cheap device to show that the emissions they do produce are not as carcinogenic as they are. Now, this was one of those things where it turns out it didn't just affect VW, it also affected Daimler and BMW, because the experiment itself was being carried out by the Lovelace Respiratory Research Institute, and it turns out that members of Daimler and BMW were involved in those experiments. So employees got fired across three different companies, mm. and the chief lobbyist and head of external relations and sustainability, Thomas Stegg, was also suspended from his job over this. Although, I'll ask you, Josh, how long do you think the suspension stuck for? Oh, I'm going to say about three days. No, I actually, see, I, I was hoping you'd say something bigger than that. It's, he was suspended for five months. Five mm. months for guessing some monkeys using a cheap device in a Volkswagen Beetle. Well, Five frankly, I, frankly, I'm surprised uh, anybody suffered any consequences whatsoever. Oh, and the, the other thing is, work. this experiment was never made public, so it was it was found out about. I think at some point people went, "We can't get away with this. We really can't get away with this." So the experiment was never published. It was found out about. I, I presumably whilst they were doing the investigation of the emission scandal and when what there are primates involved most most unsettling yeah so that's monkey gate oh. i i have a disturbing experiment to talk about as well but that was one of the bigger topics so i might just uh i'll, I'll come back to that um the next little thing i had to talk about was uh apparently there is a conspiracy theory around the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, if you'll recall, the one that, that, that did massive damage in Indonesia and I think sort of the, the eastern coast of India and around there. Um, so apparently there is, a, a, according to a website I read, a popular theory in the Muslim world is that the tsunami could have been caused by an Indian nuclear experiment in which Israeli and American nuclear experts participated. So apparently, several newspapers in Egypt and the Middle East alleged that, that India um, has acquired sophisticated nuclear technology from the US and Israel as a part of their, their sort of uh, nuclear race with Pakistan, and, and, and this was some sort of thing that was targeted uh, to, to cause casualties in uh, areas with large Muslim populations. Obviously, Indonesia, most populous Muslim country in the world, and really, that's all I've got. Uh, there is a conspiracy theory that the tsunami was caused by some sort of nuclear experiment. Um, but I have not been able to, have not really seen anything more about it than that. So an interesting factoid, but not much more to it. Interesting. I've got a fakery conspiracy theory as well. So this is about a 2002 Swedish documentary film called Conspiracy 58 that claims that the 1958 FIFA World Cup in Sweden did not take place and was actually faked by the CIA and FIFA as part of the Cold War. Hmm. 
uh, why, I guess, is the obvious well, question. Actually, that's a good question. I didn't actually look into who was playing who in this. I'm assuming it must have been a Swedish team against, say, a communist bloc team, and because otherwise it would make no sense for there to be a yes, conspiracy why, why there. Why would you bother? But of course, because we're both so heavily into sports, I, I just mm. thought I didn't need to do that research. Well, I thought you'd, you just know mm, what that was. So. so the evidence presented in the documentary is that recordings of the matches, they're talking about you know recordings available now, show houses in the background that could not have existed in 1958. It also claims that the shadows of the players on the field are angled in an impossible way, given the position of the sun over Sweden. And the chairperson of KSP 58, the committee looking into the conspiracy, stated he spent 20 years looking for physical evidence that the match took place and couldn't find anything. What would count as physical evidence that a football? Well, match I mean, I suppose you'd, you'd say you know ago. there'd be you know ticket stubs, oh, you know yeah. those all flags people wave mm. at matches, you know a beer stein of some particular kind. Presumably, you yeah. assume there'd be like massive amounts of uh, eyewitness testimony, though. Surely, lots of people would have attended and be able to say that they did. Or you expect it to be, yeah, or you know, newspaper reporting mm. at the time. Now, if I had done this as an episode, this would be a classic sting in its tail story. Because it turns out that Conspiracy Fifty Eight is a Swedish mockumentary from two thousand and two. Uh. It was produced for Swedish t- TV, and it's a fictional account of a conspiracy theory concerning the purported match in nineteen fifty eight. And it was a little bit like Forgotten Silver, the infamous mockumentary that mm. Peter Jackson made Jackson. about the untold story of what turned out to be a fictitious silent filmmaker back home in Aotearoa, New, Ze- New Zealand. Viewers were not aware it was a mockumentary until the very end of the film. They'd actually forgotten Silver. They revealed it was a mockumentary the next day, which is the reason why it pissed off so many people back home, Mm. because they were taken in by it. In this case, they do reveal it's a mockumentary, I believe, in the very last scene. And... It's, but it wasn't advertised as a mo- as a mockumentary. It was played in a documentary slot. People went into it thinking it was going to be a documentary. People, of course, who turned off whilst watching the mockumentary were con- may have been convinced by it. So they were convinced by it. Some people may have been. Some people weren't. But it was meant to provoke discussions about source criticism, about how easy it would be to put forward the claim that a major event that had occurred hadn't occurred by simply saying but there's there's no evidence here and that's basically it i mean it's it's a documentary it's a conspiracy theory that virtually no one believes i I mean i'm assuming some people must believe it to have made it ever so slightly plausible to put forward in the first place and also would have required me to watch a swedish language mockumentary so it ended up being, I don't think it's big enough for a What the Conspiracy, but it is big enough for a mention in a mini, possibly what could have been The Conspiracy. Well, uh, sticking on the fakery theme then, I have this one. 
I can't remember where I got it from. It might have been one sent to me by a friend of the podcast, Hayden, uh, who's, who's supplied a few topics in the past, or it might have been someone, uh, someone on Twitter sent me the link. So if it wasn't Hayden, I apologize to the person who it actually was. Um, but I saw, I was sent an interesting story about a contributor to Chinese Wikipedia who spent 10 years, uh, using four different accounts, uh, making dozens of articles describing fake Russian history. So on Chinese Wikipedia, you could find these, these, um, articles about places and events and battles and, and aristocrats and other people in, in, in various areas of Russia. And people start to notice it's, it's, it was a little bit strange that the Chinese language articles about these areas seem to have a lot more in them than, say, the Russian language articles about Russian topics in some areas, uh, or, or the English language ones. And so it was um, a guy they, they identify as Yifan, um, who was a novelist looking for... Uh, so browsing through Chinese Wikipedia, looking for historical events to inspire uh, the next novel, and th they sort of discovered that uh, upon sort of find finding what looked like an interesting topic, but then going deeper and deeper into the detail and realizing that th th this this, this um, in particular it was a mine, a, a silver mine that there was was apparently very, a significant thing that battles were fought over and so on, never existed. And this article was about was about uh, was basically fiction, and so they they looked through there was, Wikipedia conducted an investigation, found that yes, there were four puppet accounts that were used to make a false history of the Qing Dynasty in China and the history of Russia, um, and so this this had been going on since twenty ten. Uh, this article was from uh, earlier this year, and. Yeah, so so you sort of had four accounts which would sort of reference one another or sort of back each other up, uh, and it turned out it was basically um, a single a single uh, contributor who's known as uh, referred to as Shi Mao, which was one of her aliases. Apparently, she claimed in her profile to be the daughter of a diplomat stationed in Russia, and had a degree in Russian history. And was now a Russian citizen, having having married a Russian, and yeah, she just uh, just started writing articles on Wikipedia, uh, and and got away with it. I mean, she's not the first person I think we've heard of that's done stuff like that. Sort of started making edits and realized that you can, you know, they they check stuff, but they don't check that much, and you can probably just get away with stuff. And then and then sort of um, as she put it. As the saying goes, in order to tell a lie, you must tell more lies. I was reluctant to delete the hundreds of thousands of words I wrote, but as a result, I wound up losing millions of words and a circle of academic friends collapsed. The trouble I've caused is hard to make up for, so maybe a permanent ban is the only option. My current knowledge is not enough to make a living, so in the future I will learn a craft, work honestly, and not do nebulous things like this anymore. So it was an interesting story. Not, not really conspiratorial, I guess, just because it was only one person doing it. A nice sort of tie into the themes of, of fakery and stuff in the art world and so on that we'd uh, that we've looked at in the past.
And indeed, as many as many listeners will be aware, we could almost be the podcaster's guide to fakery in the art world, because it is a, a topic we do a like to get topic. into whenever yeah, possible. They always manage to be interesting, those arty ones. But yeah, a single case, probably not enough to justify an entire episode, and also not technically a conspiracy in the first place. Okay, would you like to go to Romania? I'd love to go to Romania. I know you would. I've been to Romania mm. more than once. Mm. So this is Decree 770, and this is the inspiration for The Handmaid's Tale. Oh, okay. So Decree 770 was a decree by Nicola Ceausescu's communist government signed in 1967 that restricted, and restricted very heavily, abortion and contraception in Romania, it was designed, or at least intended, to create a large and new Romanian population, and also, by the way, explains why there were so many orphanages in Romania in the 70s and 80s, the general view of Romanians towards abortion today. Hmm. How is it conspiratorial, then? Well, that's, I mean, it's not necessarily conspiratorial, which is part of the issue mm. of this not being a particularly good what the conspiracy, because it was all very much done in the open. And if I had done this as a full episode, I probably would have done a lot more about the, can you guess which country enacted a kind of handmaid's tale that Margaret Atwood based the story upon? So it would do something along the lines of, they think it's fictional, but actually it turned out to be real. So abortion was legal and very common pre-1967 back in Romania, and that was largely due to the fact that contraception was very hard to come by. So the standard way of population control enacted by family units in Romania was to simply get an abortion for any unwanted pregnancy. And Romania post the 1950s had a very low birth rate. Now, the communists blamed this on their liberal abortion laws, but most historians, economists, and sociologists claim the real reason for the low birth rate in Romania from the 1950s onwards was due to a very low standard of living and thus the necessity for women to be in the workforce. So essentially, women were going to work, and thus they weren't staying at home having babies or raising them. And that does sound ever so slightly sexist when I put it forward. Like, that is if that's what women should do. But indeed, in the 1950s, even if you wanted children, and you wanted lots of children, both parents had to work if they were to sustain themselves. Now, the communists didn't like this. They wanted Romania's population to go from 20 million to 30 million inhabitants. So they enacted Decree 770. And indeed, in the first few years, the estimated number of children per woman, which is the TFR rate, increased from 1.9 to 3.7. And this was done by the fact that all women had to report to a gynecologist every month, and if a gynecologist detected a pregnancy, there was follow-up procedures happening on an almost weekly basis until such time that the child was born. 
This was done by both requiring women to report to their gynecologist on a month-by-month basis, and also the fact that the secret police were then notified about any pregnancy, and would basically surveil pregnant women to make sure that they weren't doing anything to endanger the life of the unborn child. Sex education in Romania became all about the virtues of motherhood, and basically wasn't anything to do with safe sex practices and the like. And so as I say, in the first few years, there was a almost a doubling of the birth rate in Romania, and then a few years after that, there was a very heavy decline, both in the birth rate and also mother and child mortality rates. So how long did this last for? Well, Decree 770 was abolished on the 26th of December 1989, so a few days after the December Revolution that saw the deposing and then execution of Nikolai and Elena Ceausescu and basically the end of a formal communist government in Romania. The decree itself stopped working well because wealthier families worked out that they could obtain contraceptives illegally, largely from abroad, or they'd simply bribe doctors to give diagnoses that made abortion possible. So abortion wasn't made entirely illegal, it was just made very, very difficult to obtain. So you simply pay your doctor to ensure that you were allowed to have the abortion that you required. Unfortunately, poorer women could only utilize primitive methods of abortion, which often led to infection, sterility, or even their own death, which meant that the mortality rate amongst pregnant women in Romania became the highest in Europe during the reign of Ceausescu. I believe it was 10 times higher than their near neighbors in Eastern European countries. So it was a horrifically high mortality rate and many of the children who were born were given up to adoption which meant they went into orphanages where they became severely malnourished and thus often actually physically disabled due to that malnourishment and ended up in not particularly salubrious conditions of care in Romania, which led to a rise in child mortality as well post-birth. So, yeah, like, did anybody acknowledge that it, that this this rule wasn't really producing the results they wanted, or was it just about numbers, the fact that you know, more children were being born, the fact that they... Uh, well, more children were initially being mm. born. Yeah. It didn't there was a steep decline in the survivability of those children by the mid nineteen seventies. But no, the communists technically kept it up. As I say, the decree was only abolished in nineteen eighty nine. But this largely explains why Romania has such a liberal abortion policy now, despite the fact that the Romanian Orthodox Church is very dead set against it, and Romanian Orthodoxy is kind of the official state religion of Romania, which is that Romanians remember Decree 
770 and don't want to go back to those days. And the Romanian Orthodox Church has gone, we can't really be associated with that communist decree because we're also formally against communism, but we're also against abortion. And I think we have to be consistent with our anti-communist attitudes and just say nothing about abortion, even though we'd like to. Most unsettling. Yes, and very unsavory. Yes, well, I'll continue in that theme then. So those last ones were the smaller topics. Here are the ones that are a little bit larger, but still not enough to make an episode out of, I think. Uh, so th this is the dodgy experience I mentioned before. Have you heard of Project Sunshine? I've seen Sunshine the film, the Danny Boyle uh, film. Different, different, different sunshine. Are you sure? Quite, is, this about, is this about reigniting the sun? It is about not reigniting about the sun. sending rockets to reignite the sun. No. Oh, no, is this is this the project where they give Mario a water-based jetpack and they make a they make Super Mario Sun Sunshine? Is this a conspiracy theory about the making of that game? Uh, no, it's it, it it's less about uh, Nintendo platform-based entertainment, more about experimenting on dead tissue. Well, now you've got me interested. Mm. You so know Project, me and my necromancy. Uh, Project Sunshine was, was, was a series of research studies in the 1950s um, commissioned by the United States Atomic Energy Commission and uh, the Rand, Rand Corporation. I don't think we've talked about before, but they did. They did. They were technically a sort of a, a non-profity think tank, but they did like research and analysis for the U.S. Armed Forces. Um, so it was all about that they wanted to find out because this is the starting in the early fifties, so not long after World War Two, uh, nuclear weapons have been developed, they've been used, but we still don't know a hell of a lot about the long term of yeah, apart from the initial devastation, about the long term effects of using nuclear weapons. So uh there had previously been a project called Project Gabriel that was to do with um investigating sort of the, the the it was looking into nuclear fallout and um what what the dangerous bits of nuclear fallout was going to be what 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 substances and what have you were the things to worry about the most in terms of uh the dangers of nuclear fallout so that had um that had concluded that the radioactive isotope strontium 90 was the biggest danger, the biggest threat to human health from nuclear fallout. And so Project Sunshine was a follow-up to that, where they wanted to... They, they want, they, they want, from, this, from what I can gather, they sort of wanted to, to get a baseline of uh, how much strontium-90 is, 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 is out there. I don't like the, the, the equivalent of a background radiation or something. They wanted to know... They wanted to find out the concentration of strontium-90 um, in people's bodies right now, so that I assume to give them a better idea of how, uh, yeah, how how much is too much essentially, and for reasons I don't quite understand, having only, having not gone into research this into great detail, um, the best way to find this out was by examining dead tissue. I guess if you want to find out how how much strontium ninety is in bodily tissue, you need to sort of chop it up and do a bunch of experiments on it, so better to experiment on the recently dead 
rather than chop bits off living people to to examine them. I, I, I guess you need more than just a blood sample or something. But so, so, so. so, so basically they needed cadavers. Um, they needed to, to experiment on cadavers to find out the levels of strontium-90 usually found in, in body tissues and bones. And they were particularly interested in the bodily tissues of children, of the very young, because their developing bones um, would have the highest propensity to accumulate strontium-90, which would make them the most susceptible to radiation damage. So... So basically, in order to do the study, uh, the, the um, commissioner of the Atomic Energy Commission, Dr. William Libby, uh, apparently said, I don't know how to get them, but I do say that it's a matter of prime importance to get them, referring to samples from dead people, and particularly in the young age group. So human samples are often of prime importance, and if anybody knows how to do a good job of body snatching, they will really be serving their country. So I assume that was slightly... Uh, a light-hearted way of putting it, but nevertheless, apparently over 1,500 samples of dead tissue were acquired, although they only ended up analysing about 500 of them. And the thing was, apparently a lot of these samples from... Like, I, I believe they, they, they didn't get uh, 1,500 whole cadavers, they got samples from 1,500 cadavers. Many of them... Uh, babies and, and, and children who had tragically died young, a lot of them were taken without the consent of, say, mm. the relatives of those people. Yeah, so, so they came from all over the world, from Australia, from Europe. So there was, um, there's an article, I can't see a date on it, I think it was 2011, uh, from, from ABC, the ABC network in Australia, um, about how people were, were finding out that samples from Aus dead Australian babies had been sent off to America for this. Um, so there was a there was an investigation into all of this, and and uh, and, and as you can imagine, um, people were a little bit uh, uh, disturbed by the whole thing. So, for instance, so so one particular story is that. Um, so this oh okay this article I think it says is from 2011 but the um this started to be found out about in the 90s there was a documentary in 1995 a British documentary called Deadly Experiments I assume Project Sunshine was one of the experiments featured who spoke to a woman called Jean Pritchard whose baby was stillborn in 1957 she claimed that the baby's legs were removed to be sent away for testing in Project Sunshine, and she was not allowed to dress the to, to dress the baby for its for her funeral because so so she wouldn't find out that they'd chopped bits off of it. So yeah, so, so it turned out there's a bunch of a bunch of of of, of severely uh, dodgy dealings in acquiring the samples that they needed to conduct their studies, and that's that, that, that that's kind of where where it leaves it um the results from it were used in other studies which found out interesting stuff about about how much strontium 90 exists naturally and how much of it's bad for you and and whether or not if you get strontium 90 in the soil will that go into the grass which will go into the cows which will go into milk which will go into people and sort of tracing that sort of stuff so results useful results came from it 
but uh, the way, the ultimately the way in which those results were obtained turned out to be uh, deeply, deeply dodgy. And it's not surprising that uh, they didn't, didn't, didn't publicize them at the time. Hmm. Hmm, indeed. Hmm, I say. Hmm. hmm. So there we go. I've got, I've got, um, dead babies. Can you, can you raise the tone a little bit or are we going to stick at that level of depressingness? Well, the only other one which I was musing about was talking about what the Jesuits were doing in China and during the Crusades, which seems ever so slightly conspiratorial, but also too big. So if you know anything about the history of the Jesuit order, one of the more interesting Roman Catholic orders, or as I've discovered from many of my European friends, one of the interesting Roman Catholic orders, because we say Catholic, most Europeans go Catholic instead. So it's actually quite interesting to go, hmm, if Italians call it the Roman Catholic Church, I have a feeling that's probably what it's called. I have a feeling that maybe in the English-speaking world, we don't know how to say Catholic or Catholic. So during the Crusades, the Jesuits are often sent into areas bordering Muslim territories and would encourage feudal lords in those areas to get into Ajibaji with their Muslim neighbours. So they were basically sent there to cause trouble, to then justify Europeans going to the so-called Holy Lands to wage a holy war because the Muslims were predating upon good Christians, when it was in fact the good Christians who were kind of causing the issues in the first place to justify a holy war. So there's that angle of what were the Jesuits up to and exactly what was the plan. Was it a Jesuit plan? Was it a plan that was actually being put forward by the Holy See in Rome? Was it a case of the Holy See and European principalities acting in consort? There's quite a lot of literature on this. And at that point, the story gets too big because it would require reading an awful lot to get even the basic grasp on what's going on here. And the other thing which is interesting is that the Jesuits are involved in a whole bunch of issues going on both in the part of Europe that wasn't Catholic, so the Orthodox part of Europe, so looking particularly at Orthodoxy around Constantinople, formerly Istanbul, long time gone, Istanbul, Mm -hmm. and also... The Jesuits went into China and got involved in politics there, and they were involved in politics in China at the point that the Chinese expelled all the Christians from China, and yet continued to be at the royal court for years after that. And there's a lot of literature on the, what political game were the Jesuits playing in China, where they seem to have been at least partially responsible for the Chinese attitude of being intolerant towards Christians at that time, yet still actively being Christians in the royal court. And it was one of those things where I went, it's just too big. I'm not quite sure how to approach it or how to talk about it, because it would probably be one of those hour-and-a-half-long podcast of, you know, you think we've dealt with the Jesuits uh, Jesuits with the Middle East, but now we need to think about 
what were they doing in China? And go, in China? And go, yes, part two of what the conspiracy, the Jesuits in China. So that went on to the list of, can I find a way to approach it? And the answer was always, no, I can't. No, I can't. It's too big. Hmm. Does that tie into when we talked about the Taiping Rebellion? Because I remember the the fellow who kicked that off had some weird synthesis of Christianity and other Chinese religions, but I'm not I sure if it was a Jesuit. I think by the who... time the Taiping Rebellion is going on, the Jesuits have left China. So, I mean, they, they do overstay their welcome, but they are there at the point where the Christians are initially turfed out. And so the forms of Christianity we see in China post the exodus of Western Christians are basically the remnants of Christian belief systems kind of becoming nativized into Chinese belief systems, which leads to things like the really interesting form of Christianity that we talked about around the Taiping Rebellion, which has elements of traditional Chinese beliefs with avant-garde Christian beliefs. And, well, we did an entire episode on that. It was very exciting. Yes. Okay, was that your, was that your last one? It was indeed. Because I mean, the thing is, I, I have kept I, I have kept a few in lieu for when I might want to surprise you in future. So mm, there are other ones yes, yes. which I almost put in, into this list and went, no, actually, I'll save that. I've also put a few others in into the future topics list. So there are some which I think might be interesting for us to both dive into and talk about. Right. Well, I, I have one more then. Um, this one, I don't, may, maybe I could have stretched this into a full episode, I don't know, maybe if I talked about the a bit more of the history around it or something, but uh, an interesting topic is the death of William II. What, do, do, you, do you know anything about William II, King of England? I know there was a William II, but that's about it. Well, William II was the son of William I, otherwise known as William the Conqueror, so that's the the Norman who who invaded England in 1066 and and basically conquered England. So William William the Second, otherwise known as William Rufus, which is basically Latin for William the Red. Uh, possibly he was he, he had red hair, or we're not quite not quite sure. So William the Second was the third son of William the Conqueror. Uh, his the second son died, and when William the Conqueror died. Um, his oldest son, Robert, was given, uh, because obviously William was still the king of, of uh, Normandy, or duke, or whatever, I don't even know how these things worked, but so uh, rule of Normandy was given to his eldest son, and then William, being the next in line, was given England, basically. So he was the king, and then there was there was a bit of there was a bit of argy bargy between the two of them, between uh, Robert and William, where various people thought, you know, it would actually be nice if we had one person in charge of both Normandy and England, like with, with, with William I, and, but um, that all eventually came to nothing. William, I think, I think William II, having been in England, was able to sort of shore up his own support and was, was, became very definitely the King of England. Interesting side note from a philosophical perspective, uh, William II is the person who nominated Anselm as Archbishop of Canterbury, famous famous medieval philosopher, or well, late, later Saint Anselm. If you've done a stage one metaphysics paper, you've probably heard of, of Augustine, Anselm and Aquinas. Those seem to be the big three when it came to medieval philosophy. 
And so, so yeah, I mean, I could talk a bit about the, the, the trouble he got in and the disagreements between him and the church and stuff like that. But the interesting thing is his death. The death of William II happened apparently on the 2nd of August, 1100 AD. Uh, he was shot on dur- during a hunting trip. Uh, oh. Apparently killed by an arrow through the lung. See, he, he was out. He was out. You know, hunting with a bunch of a bunch of other nobles, uh, and there appeared to be his death appeared to be the result of a hunting accident, the the, the sort of thing that happens to this day. Um, of course, they were using bows and arrows rather than firearms. But initially, he was there. He was there with a b- bunch of nobles. He gets shot and killed. The immediate reaction is, "Oh shit! Let's get out of here." So, so the entire party just bolts. They leave the king's body lying in the middle of a forest, where it would eventually be found by a, a local arrow maker. And, and I, I, yeah, I assume nobody wanted to get in trouble. Now, the thing that's made some people suspicious is that one of the members of William II's hunting party was his younger brother, Henry. Now, as soon as William was dead, Henry immediately ran off to Winchester to secure the royal treasury, and then to London, and he was crowned King of England within days of William's death, uh, apparently before either Archbishop could arrive to, I assume, confirm it or whatever. And and the King's body was, you know, found by a commoner, taken off to Winchester Cathedral and so on. So at the time, it was, it was just written off as a hunting accident. Uh, a particular nobleman by the name of Walter Tyrell was named as the man who had accidentally shot the king. You know, the, 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 the typical hunting accident scenario. You think you're you're creeping through the underbrush, think you see an animal, loose an arrow, and it turns out that no, you've you've accidentally killed the king of England. Could happen to anyone. At the time, like, because as I said, he was kind of on the outs with the church a little bit, and so people sort of thought, oh, well, this was just a this was this was you know th- th- this this was an act of God. This was sort of retribution for his his unchurchly ways, and so people were quite happy to leave it at that. But since then, people have said, you know, wh- was it an accident? Are we sure it was really an accident? Um, apparently, Walter Tyrell was known to be a very good bowman, and supposedly not the sort of person who would who would loose an arrow without properly identifying his target and and basically the fact that that Henry was so quick to run off and and declare himself king straight away has made historians in the past suspicious that maybe this could have actually been an assassination so th- there is no evidence either way um we, we we will never know for sure but um modern historians are more accepting of the view that maybe it was an assassination than um, than people thought of, about it at the time. So, yeah, I mean, an interesting story, interesting conspiracy theory involved, but probably not enough uh, to occupy a full episode, which is why I'm talking about it now. And a wonderful story it is too. Accidents. Mm. Not accidents. I mean, history History will tell us, and the problem is it won't. No, no, it won't. That's entirely correct. Um, now that I think of it, maybe it would have actually be made a good little bit for a patron bonus episode. It's true. Now, we do do patron bonus do. episodes. For people who listen to us, you may well be aware that 
Over on the internet, we have patron bonus episodes. You can go to patreon.com, look up the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy, and you can become a patron where you get extra content. Sometimes we talk about the latest in conspiracy theory news. Sometimes we talk about mysterious happenstances in far-flung countries such as Spain or Portugal or Dunedin. I mean, the world is our oyster. So if you want to hear more of the kind of prevarification that we engage in, why not become a patron and go to Patreon and become a patron on Patreon? It's as little as a dollar a month will get you bonus content up the wazoo. Mm, the actual wazoo. That's a medical term. Uh, and I am a doctor. Mm. Nevertheless, your, your, your respective wazoos can take a break now because I think we're done with the main part of this episode. As M intimates, we are about to go off and record a bonus episode for our patrons where we will let them in on more dark and interesting developments in the, in the ongoing operation of this podcast. And yeah, talk about Portugal a bit maybe. Who knows? Could do anything. Who knows? But until then... Uh, I think it's time to just draw this main episode and with it the What the Conspiracy feature it, unless you decide to spring one on me again. Unless I decide to spring one on you, you never know. I might stumble across something and think, oh, that would have made a good What the Conspiracy. Wait a minute. and then. But until then, I think the only thing to responsibly do is say goodbye. Buenos Aires, my friend. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy is Josh Addison and me, Dr. M.R.X. Denter. You can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon. And remember, remember, oh December, what a night.